This message, titled, Don't Quench the Spirit, from 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 19, was preached at Winchester Reformed Presbyterian Church in Winchester, Kansas. For more information, visit us at winchesterrp.com. Brothers and sisters, I want to remind you this evening as we return again to this letter, as we return again to this text and this closing section of what these authors have to write to the church of the Thessalonians, that the broader scope of what is being written here, Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy are reminding the Thessalonians, and because these scriptures are written for us as well, they are reminding us that it is the distinct responsibility of every single Christian to do what they can, to do what we can, to encourage and to build others in the church up. Oftentimes when we hear of churches that are facing significant problems, and it happens to almost every church at some point in their congregational life, if not at several points in their congregational life, Sometimes when we hear about the problems that break out in churches, it would be easy to step back and just think for a moment that if all of us together were more committed to that idea that it is my job to encourage and it is my job to build up others in the church, how many of our issues would be immediately solved? As Christians, as members of the church of Jesus Christ, We ought always to remember it is not my job to discourage people. It is not my job to tear people down. But as Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy have been writing since at least the 11th verse, it is my job to throw my weight and my energy behind strengthening and building up the church of Jesus Christ. And that really is, in a macro level, that's the point of Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy here in verse 11. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. And as we've seen in previous weeks, they don't leave us to connect the dots on our own, to scratch our heads and wonder, well, how is it that I can encourage others? How is it that I can build others up and profit the church of Jesus Christ? Rather, with meticulous precision, Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy guide us, don't they? They tell us, here is exactly how you are to do that, and we've seen that in previous weeks. Once again, that we might hear it with repetition in verses 12 and 13. They tell us that part of our encouraging and building others up in the church has to do with the way in which we respond to the leadership of the church. In verse 14, it has to do with how we respond to different groups in the church. Those who are idle, those who are faint-hearted, those who are weak. In verse 15, it has to do with how we respond to those even in the church, but to everyone who might seek to do us harm, who don't do, you might say, good by us. And how we respond to them has to do with encouraging and building the church up. And as we've seen in the last two weeks, another significant part of this 
is that our lives in our various situations and in our various circumstances, that each of our lives would be marked by rejoicing, by prayer, and by giving thanks at all times, because as they write, this is the will of God in Jesus Christ. Very simply, Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy are saying to this model church, to this healthy church, Here is how each of you can continue to grow. Here is how each of you can contribute to the welfare of the congregation you are a part of. Well, we come this evening in verses 19 through 22 to another set of commands. Another set of commands that come with very quick succession. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy say, Do not quench the spirit. Do not despise prophecies. But Test everything, hold fast what is good, abstain from every form of evil. And we might step back for a moment and scratch our heads and wonder, well, what is the rhyme, what is the reason that unites these things that Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy so quickly rattle off for us? Well, I want you to note in introducing this to you that They are not completely separated from one another. That as they rattle off these few quick, succinct commands, that there is a certain logic. There is a certain rhyme and there is a certain reason. And maybe the best way to see that is to see that what they are doing, they are moving, if I can put it in these terms, they're moving from the big picture to the little picture. They are moving in rapid succession from the general to the particular. What do I mean by that? Well, in verse 19, do not quench the spirit. And that is a broad, far-reaching command that encompasses all of the Holy Spirit's activity. But then in verse 20, We see them narrow the focus a little bit. Do not despise prophecies. Now, as we'll see if the Lord is willing in in weeks ahead, what Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy primarily mean there is not despising the word of God as it comes to us, the Spirit's word to us. And then in verses 21 and 22, they, they narrow it up a little more that in not despising prophecies, that we see to it that we test everything, that we exercise Christian discernment, that we hold fast to what is good even as we abstain from every form and every appearance of evil. And so what Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy are doing is they are moving from the general to the more specific. And this evening, I want to begin with the first of these. Do not quench the spirit. Do not quench the spirit. The words are few, but brothers and sisters, the metaphor is very graphic. The word quench is a word that quite literally means to extinguish. Do not extinguish the Holy Spirit. The word quench is a word that means do not suppress, do not restrain the Holy Spirit. Spirit, as though the Spirit himself were a flame of fire. And our command is to see to it that we don't quench him. 
Well, brothers and sisters, these words are few, and in many ways they are not hard to understand, but they do require this evening some careful application to us. So I want to begin first, as we look at verse 19, do not quench the spirit. I want to begin first on the point of what we might call the fire of the spirit. Now again, in verse 19, do not quench the spirit. I want you to just notice grammatically the way in which this is worded. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, of course, they don't write, don't quench a spirit, They do not write, do not quench any spirit. But if you're familiar with your grammar, you see the definite article there. Do not quench the spirit. And when we see a definite article, when we see the word the, the spirit, what is being written of here is something that in many ways they take for granted is an assumed point of knowledge. That is, all of us, brothers and sisters, ought to immediately know that when Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy write this, do not quench the Spirit, the Spirit is no one other than the Holy Spirit. Do not quench the Holy Spirit. And it's important this evening for us to acknowledge that. It's important for us to recognize that. Without trying to sound pessimistic, perhaps it's a valuable point of of criticism that many Christians today have a very undeveloped understanding of who the Holy Spirit is. There are times when, when you read some of the books that have been written, especially on the doctrine of God, where in, in some of our circles, the Holy Spirit is sometimes called the forgotten person of the Trinity. And it goes to prove that, that for many of us, the person of the Holy Spirit is, is likely someone who's a little mysterious to us. We get Jesus. We can understand something of, of God the Son incarnate in the flesh. When we think of God the Father, we often think in in references, as as we saw this morning, of of the Father-Son relationship. And and in that sense, it's easy for us to, to grasp something of God the Father. But I think it's a fair point of observation that for many of us, the person of the Holy Spirit can be a little mysterious and a little confusing. Many of us likely have an undeveloped understanding of the Spirit. Let me remind you this evening that the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God, is not some impersonal force. The Spirit of God is not some energy, but the Spirit of God is, as we have been taught from our earliest years to confess and to believe, He is the third person of the Trinity, equal in power and in glory with the Father and the Son. And yet, as we confess in the doctrine of the Trinity, not three gods, but one God, one in substance, one in essence, three in person. The Father is not the Son, the Son is not the Spirit, the Spirit is not the Father, but These three are one. 
And I remind you of that this evening. Because as we come to terms with what is written in these few words, we ought immediately to recognize the importance of what is being written here. Do not quench the Spirit. Do not quench the third person of the divine trinity who with the Father and the Son is equal in power and in glory. Friends, as we come to verse 19, we are dealing with God himself. We are not dealing, as in previous commands that appear here in this chapter, simply with the relationships that we have with one another. We are not merely dealing with human relationships between the leaders of the church and and those in the church who are led. We are not dealing merely with, with people in their weaknesses and in their struggles, the idle, the faint-hearted, the weak. We are not dealing here, brothers and sisters, even with our response, or you might say our interaction with, with evil men and evil women who would seek to do us harm. We are not dealing, as we did in 16, 17, and 18, with, with the different situations and, and circumstances of our everyday life. Brothers and sisters, verse 19 has to do with God himself. How we respond to him. How we interact with the one who is God over all. God the Spirit. And Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy say, Do not quench the Spirit. Do not quench him. And right there, as I've been saying, the picture that rises, even if not explicitly, but certainly implicitly, is that as we think upon the Holy Spirit, there is a sense in which, in these words, he is likened to a holy fire. And of course, that shouldn't surprise us if we're familiar with our Bibles. It shouldn't surprise us if we're familiar with the portions of Scripture that that often speak of the Holy Spirit, because how often the Spirit of God is likened to this imagery of fire. You can think, for instance, in in Matthew chapter 3, verse 11, as John the Baptist is bearing witness to Christ, as people are coming to the Jordan River to, to be baptized by John with the baptism of repentance. And yet, what does John the Baptist say? He says, I'm merely paving the way. I'm paving the way for another, for the Christ. And do you remember what John says in Matthew chapter 3, verse 11? The one who comes after me, he will baptize with fire and the Spirit. You can think of Acts chapter 2, that day of Pentecost, where after the ascension of Jesus Christ, the disciples are gathered together in in that upper room in the city of Jerusalem and and in that earth-shaking moment, quite literally, the earth-shaking moment. The promised Spirit descends upon them and Luke tells us in Acts chapter 2, verse 3, that as the Spirit descended, He did so in flame of fire. 
You could think this evening of Revelation chapter 4, verse 5. As the Apostle John is brought into the very throne room of God, there he beholds the one who sits on the throne. He sees the Lamb who was slain from the foundation of the world. And in Revelation 4, if you remember that image that John sees, he speaks in that chapter of the seven torches, which is the sevenfold spirit of God. The sevenfold spirit of God, the spirit himself who is casting and shining light upon the throne to illuminate the glories of God. Again and again and again in the scriptures, the spirit himself in particular is likened to a flame of fire. And it's a fitting symbol. It's fitting for many reasons. But let me give you two that play into what Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy write here. As we think about the fire of the Spirit, we are brothers and sisters to think of his presence. Here's what I mean by that. Biblically speaking, fire is often a symbol of God's divine presence. Again, even the illustration we used this morning, perhaps you remember in Exodus 3 as Moses stands. He stands by a bush, doesn't he? But what is unique about that bush, that bush is a flame of fire. The branches themselves unburned. And and you remember the voice from the bush saying to Moses, take off your sandals because the place where you stand is holy ground. Moses is beckoned and invited into the very fiery presence of God. You could remember and recall this evening uh, in Exodus chapter 14. As Israel is led out of Egypt. How is it that God makes his divine presence known to Israel and known to Egypt? He does it, doesn't he, at night by a fiery pillar. That pillar testifying to the fact that Israel is not alone, that Yahweh goes before them. You can think of the psalm that we sang this evening. Psalm 50. That fire comes with the approach of God. You can think of Zechariah chapter 2 verse 5. Where God in that glorious promise to his threatened people says to them, I will be to her a wall of fire all around, declares the Lord, and I will be the glory in her midst. Fire, brothers and sisters, is often, biblically speaking, a symbol for God's divine presence. And here is where we begin to see a connection. Because, friends, one of the most tremendous blessings for where you and I find ourselves in history is that the presence of God is with us, not in a fiery pillar, not in the glory cloud that covered the tabernacle, not in the incarnate Jesus Christ, who himself is now ascended and seated in heaven 
But brothers and sisters, the tremendous blessing of the new covenant is that we have the presence of God in the ministry of the Spirit. The Holy Spirit himself is the divine presence and he is with us. And as we think about that, as we think about the very presence of the Holy Spirit, we think immediately, don't we, of that great promise Jesus himself gave. In John chapter 16, as he tells his disciples their entire world is about to collapse on them. Christ is to go to the cross and then he is to go to the grave. And then he says, not only am I to go to the grave, but, but I will ascend to my... I'm not going to be with you anymore. And, and what does Jesus say? Jesus says, but you know what? It's good that I should go away so that I can send to you another helper, the one who is the Spirit. He is God's presence with us. And of course, as we think about that this evening... The presence of the Spirit with us is personal. Every Christian, here is an untold blessing of the gospel that we likely don't meditate on nearly enough. Oh, what is it that the Apostle Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 16? He says, don't you know your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit? The Spirit is personally present with every single one of us. The very language, the very picture that Paul is using there in 1 Corinthians 13 is that we ourselves, in our bodies, are a temple for the one who is the divine presence. But his presence is not only personal. If I can put it this way this evening, his presence is also public. The Apostle Paul in Ephesians 2, verse 22. Paul is talking, he's writing there about the glory of the church of Jesus Christ. And what is glorious about the church? What is glorious, brothers and sisters, about the church of Jesus Christ, of which each of us is a member? Is, Paul says in Ephesians 2, 22, we are together being built together. To be a habitation of God by his spirit. We as the church of Jesus Christ and our own congregation playing its part and its role in that is being built together by divine grace to be a place where God the spirit dwells. Where his presence is. The Holy Spirit is present. He is God with us and in us. But not only do we come to think of this fire of the Spirit in terms of his presence, but a second idea here is also that which the Spirit produces. It's that which the Spirit produces. If, if I can put it this way this evening... The scriptures testify to us. You might put it this way, that the fiery presence of the Spirit actually produces and accomplishes something in us. God the Spirit, brothers and sisters, as he is present 
personally, as he is present publicly, is, is doing a work in us. And, and what is that work? Well, I know this evening I'm not ignorant of the fact that there are, are many Christians who, who in many ways have a very real and sometimes significant disagreements, don't they, about the work of the Holy Spirit in us and, and in the church. Without descending into all of the details, those discussions usually center around, in particular, the gifts of the Spirit. And not even all of the gifts, but, but only a few of them. Gifts like speaking in tongues, gifts like healing, gifts like prophecy, things of that nature. And there's a lot of talk that has happened, at least in the last 150 years in the church. A lot of debate, a lot of disagreement. How is it that the Spirit works? When God the Spirit is present, what does He produce and, and what does He do? And I only bring that up this evening because there are some people... There are some commentators, actually probably many commentators, who when they come to this passage and they come to verse 19 and they do not quench the spirit, they automatically jump to the idea of what is called the charismatic gifts. And they say that what Paul, Sylvanus, and Timothy are saying is, is they're saying, let every gift be exercised in the church. Don't quench that. If somebody has a gift from the Spirit to give to the church, then, then, then don't quench it. Don't extinguish it. Let them exercise those gifts. But, but I think, with all charity this evening, it's a misreading of what Paul, Sylvanus, and Timothy mean here. Why is that? It's for this reason. That throughout this letter, if I can express it this way, throughout this letter, Paul, Sylvanus, and Timothy have been developing what you might call a theology of the Holy Spirit. Throughout this letter, as they write to the Thessalonians, several times, Paul, Sylvanus, and Timothy speak, don't they? about the particular work of the Holy Spirit. Let me remind you of those places this evening. In chapter 1, in chapter 1, you remember how these authors overflowed with thanksgiving for this church. In chapter 1, verse 4, they say, We know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you. And what is it that gives Paul, what is it that gives Sylvanus, what is it that gives Timothy the confidence and the assurance that God had chosen them in chapter 1, verse 5, because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. Very simply, what they are saying is, we know that you are chosen by God because when our message came to you and when the gospel was preached to you, it broke into your hearts with a firm conviction. And that conviction, they are saying, is the very working of the power of the Holy Spirit. It is He who convicted your hearts. Who in a very real sense, as the scriptures speak elsewhere, that, that it is he who, who, who set your hearts on fire. He gave you a burning conviction that the things that we preach and the glory of the gospel are things that are true and real and life-changing. 
You can think elsewhere where they speak. Of the work of the Spirit, you don't need to go far. In chapter 1, verse 6, And you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit. They're saying that in the midst of all of your sufferings, in the midst of all of your afflictions, in the midst of all of your trials, here's what conquered joy. But it's not a joy that's manufactured by willpower. It's not a joy that's manufactured by your own determination and your own resolve. They say, no, it is the joy of the Holy Spirit. The very joy that the Spirit himself is the author of. The the one who himself kindles our hearts that they might flame with affection for God and all the good that he gives. And Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy developed this even more in chapter 4. In chapter 4, as they come to to some of the practical exhortations, you perhaps remember there that that all of 4 begins with with this idea, we, we need to instruct you how to walk. We want you to know that God's will for you, as they write in chapter 4, verse 3, God's will for you is your sanctification, And then we spent some time looking at the first area of a sanctified life. And it has to do with with our sexual practices. And do you remember what Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy write there? As they tell us to abstain from sexual immorality. And then they give us reason after reason why it is that we should abstain. And in chapter 4, verse 7, they write, God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, they are saying, here is part of the glorious work of the Holy Spirit present in you personally, present in your church. He is working your sanctification. He is the one whom God has given so that you might walk and live a life of true gospel holiness. And that picture is is often depicted in, in Scripture, isn't it, in fiery terms. In the refiner's fire, as God himself burns away the dross of our hearts, that we might live as those who are purged and purified in his presence. And Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, brothers and sisters, they are saying, this is what the Spirit does. Whatever else Christians may argue about and whatever Christians might debate about, brothers and sisters, be confident in this. This is the fiery work of the Spirit. He brings conviction of the gospel. He brings joy into our hearts in the midst of all of our afflictions. And it is the Spirit of God who works holiness in our hearts. Oh, for more of that divine fire. For more of that work in my heart and in your heart. He is brothers and sisters. He is the spirit of fire. But now we come, don't we? We come then to the force of what they say. Do not quench the spirit. We've seen the fire of the Spirit, but I want this evening to preach for a few moments 
on the quenching of the spirit. Do not quench the spirit. Do not quench, you might paraphrase it, the holy fire of God. Don't do it. And again, it's it's a colorful metaphor, isn't it? The very verb quench is, is, is a loaded verb. It means extinguish. It means suppress. It means to put out. And of course, it's, it's important for us to acknowledge this evening that nothing that you and I could do could fully put God out. No behavior, no attitude, no words, no actions could, could actually in, entirely e- extinguish God. The word quench is actually also a word that can mean annihilate. And, and obviously, Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy are not saying don't annihilate the spirit. It's an impossibility. But here's what they are saying. What they are saying is, is that in a very real sense, we can extinguish, we can suppress We can put out of our hearts and out of our church the effectual working of the Spirit. And it it shouldn't surprise us. You can think of of other expressions, can't you, in in the New Testament especially that that speak of, of what people can do to the Spirit. The Apostle Paul in Ephesians chapter 4 verse 30 says, Don't grieve the Spirit by whom you've been sealed for the day of redemption. Don't grieve him. In Acts chapter 7, verse 51, Stephen says in in the midst of his his message to to the Sanhedrin, in Acts chapter 7, verse 51, he says, You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. Jesus teaches that the Holy Spirit may be blasphemed. A sin that is forgiven neither in this life or in the one to come. Matthew 12, 24. And maybe if you want to categorize it or think of it in these terms this evening, the biblical picture is, is this, that, that non-believers can resist and blaspheme the Holy Spirit. But as believers, we can grieve the Spirit. And as Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy say here, we can quench the Spirit as well. What's that look like? What's it mean, friends, to quench the Holy Spirit? I think it's helpful to think of the quenching of the Spirit from two angles. The first, you might say, is an active quenching of the Spirit, an an active quenching. When you think of putting a fire out, Oftentimes that can be accomplished, can't it, by throwing a pail of water on it. There's a flame, I want to extinguish the fire, so I actively throw water on a fire to, to douse it. And, and in a very real sense, as Paul, Sylvanus, and Timothy write this, don't, don't quench the spirit. I, I don't mean this in, in crass or unreverent terms. But they're saying each of you as Christians see to it that in your lives... You don't throw a bucket of cold water on the Spirit in your life. Don't do that. Don't actively seek to put the Spirit out of your life. 
Don't actively seek to suppress him. Don't actively seek to extinguish the effects of what he is doing in his life. Don't actively seek to put him out. And what's that look like? Well, it takes all kinds of forms, doesn't it? We don't have to search very far for examples of that this evening. If, if we think of the work of the Spirit, that, that part of His fiery work in, in our lives and in our church is to convict us. How does the Spirit convict us? Well, the Spirit can convict us right through the law of God. The Apostle Paul writes of that in, in Romans chapter 7. That he didn't know what it was to covet until the law entered in and then all the sin of his heart was exposed. The Spirit uses the law of God to convict us. And so what that means, we quench the Spirit when we add to the law of God. We quench the Spirit when we detract from the law of God. We we quench the Spirit when we teach the commandments and the traditions of men as the law of God. Or you can think this evening, can't you? You remember those famous words that fell from the lips of Martin Luther. He was asked to recant his writings. Perhaps you remember how he took his famous stand and he said, I cannot go against conscience. For it is neither safe nor right. Of course, Luther wasn't saying there because conscience is our ultimate Lord. God alone is Lord. But Luther's hitting on a point, you might say, of of Christian psychology that the Spirit uses our consciences. When he convicts us of sin, it is a work of the Spirit of God upon our conscience so that to ignore conscience can be a quenching of the Spirit. When you know the good that you ought to do and you do it not, it's quenching the Spirit. When your conscience warns you and directs you, don't go down that path. Don't do that. Don't engage in that. Don't speak that word. Fix your attitude. And you ignore the dictates of conscience guided by the word of God. It is a quenching of the spirit. If the work of the spirit is to cultivate joy in our hearts. Friends, we can quench the spirit. When we replace joy with anger. We quench the spirit when we replace joy with bitterness. We quench the spirit when we replace joy with fear. We replace joy with divisions. We are quenching the Holy Spirit. If the work of the spirit is to sanctify us, we can quench the... You remember what Paul says to the Galatians. What had they done? They quenched the spirit. Paul says in Galatians chapter 3, verse 3, Come on, Galatians. Did you begin in the spirit, but now you're going to be perfected by the flesh? Paul's simply saying you're quenching the spirit. It's, It's the spirit who sanctifies you. You can't perfect yourself by your own efforts and by the flesh. But you've got to rely upon the spirit to do it. If it's the Spirit who who bears the fruit in our lives, the fruit of, of love and of joy and of peace and patience and kindness and gentleness and faithfulness and goodness and self-control, to despise these things, to shrug them off, to think gentleness has no place in my life. Self-control is not some fruit that I need to be bearing. That, brothers and sisters, is an active 
quenching of the Holy Spirit. And Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy say, don't do that. Don't quench the Spirit. But there's another angle too, isn't there? There's another way to extinguish fire. Not simply to actively, you might say, dump a bucket of water on it. But there is, if I can put it in these terms this evening, there is a fairly passive way to extinguish a fire. Yesterday, my kids and I were burning leaves in the backyard. As we finished, we didn't douse it with water. We just ran out of leaves. We let the fire be. We let the pile be. And without stoking the fire, without putting more leaves in, obviously, it extinguished Itself. Not so much an, an active work on our part, more passive, if I can put it this way, brothers and sisters, we can quench the Spirit through neglect. We can quench the Spirit by simply not doing anything in our lives, by not seeing to it. To use the imagery that daily we are stoking the fire of the Spirit in our heart. To to, to live a life where we are not fueling the Holy Spirit. And and that might seem a little strange. Well, well, what's that mean? What's that look like? Let me give you one, one clue here. What is the fuel that the Spirit uses in our lives and in our church? It's this. It's the truth. It's the truth of God. The Spirit, if I can express it this way this evening, the Spirit burns brightly in our lives upon the fuel of truth. It's why in John chapter 16, verse 13, he is called the Spirit of all truth. How does the Spirit convict us? He convicts us by bringing our hearts into confrontation with the truth of God. How how does the Spirit cultivate joy in our hearts? He does so by the truth. How is it that the Spirit sanctifies us? Jesus has told us in John 17, sanctify them by your word. Your word is truth. To put it bluntly, to put it simply this evening, brothers and sisters, to not know the truth, to not hold to the truth, to not cling to the truth, to not dig your roots deeply into the truth of God is at the end of the day to quench the spirit, to not fuel him, so to speak, to to not let him have his own powerful working in your life or even in the church by a neglect of his truth. And Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy say, don't do that. Don't quench the spirit. Don't quench the spirit. Brothers and sisters, it's in many ways a simple command. But how vital to our lives. How important that as we seek to encourage, as we seek to build one another up, as you and I each, according to the grace of God, seek to be strong in the Christian faith, 
and to do what we can to strengthen the church we are a part of. Friends, how desperately important that you and I learn how to respond to the Spirit. To not be those who quench, who extinguish Him, but as those who, so to speak, fan into flame the fire of God. Let's pray.